All right. Well, if you have your Bible, open with me, please, to the book of Ezekiel. We are working our way through this marvelous book. It is in some ways a, a painful book because of the, so many messages that Ezekiel gave about judgment. And in fact, what I've titled the message tonight is Present Pain that will give way to future glory. And we are feeling some pain now in the world for various reasons, just uh, getting over all this COVID business and, and now with uh, <clears throat> the war in Ukraine and inflation and uh, all kinds of other stuff going on. There's lots of pain in the world all the time, but it seems to be uh, exacerbated right now because of all that's happening. That's why we need to keep anchored in the Word of God and keep close in our prayer life to the Lord because, uh, you know, we don't know what a day may bring. We don't know what the next 15 seconds may bring. But I'm glad to know that he's in control and that uh, we really don't have to worry about it. Let me remind you of what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. He said, do not worry about anything, but pray about everything. Now, that ought to help us kick up our prayer life a little bit. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Tell God your needs, and don't forget to thank Him for His answers. Isn't that a good verse? Let's practice that. As we look tonight at Ezekiel chapter 20 and chapter 21, we're going to hit the highlights of these chapters as we talk tonight about present pain and future glory. This is uh, the last message, really, that Ezekiel preaches to the exiles before the fall of Jerusalem. It's only about five years before Jerusalem falls. It's the year 591 B.C., and Jerusalem fell in the year 586 B.C. And Ezekiel, as you know, was in the POW camp. He's actually in Babylon or near Babylon with the uh, Hebrew and Jewish uh, exiles, and he's been talking to them over the course of several years now. And every year that goes by, it, they get closer and closer to the time when God is going to use the Babylonians finally to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the whole country of Judea. He's been there for uh, several years along with some other of these uh, exiles. So what is the message here when he's getting close to the end? What is the message that he wants to deliver to the people? I want you to look with me, and if you've got your outline handy, here's point number one. God will always deal with a pattern of rebellion. And that's what the Israelites had demonstrated over the course of many decades and, in fact, centuries. They had lived a pattern of rebellion. And this is what Ezekiel is going to go over with them simply to remind them not only what they are doing, but also what those who came before them had done as well. Let's begin at uh, verse 1, and this is kind of the introduction to it. Uh, chapter 20, verse 1, it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. 
In other words, I'm not going to answer any questions that you have. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? This is God's way of saying it's time to pronounce God's judgment on them. Then make known to them the abominations of their fathers. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made known, made, my, made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them uh, to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast, they did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake that I should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Here is God's message through his prophet Ezekiel wanting to tell these elders why they were in Babylon. I'm sure many of them were saying, what did we do wrong? Why? I mean, we still had the temple in Jerusalem. We still went to the temple uh, this and that. Uh, we don't understand. Why are we here? And so they come to Ezekiel. They search him out. Ezekiel has not made the habit of going out among the people very much. He would occasionally, but they would come to see him. The elders, the leaders of Israel would come to see him. And so they wanted to inquire, why, why are we here? What's going on? What's about to happen? And so God says to Ezekiel, here's what I want you to tell them. Tell them that they're here because of their sin, and which he will get to eventually, but God is going to lay out for them the pattern of rebellion that they had lived for century after century. And he begins by telling them about the time that he made an oath to them. He says, I raised my hand and made an oath to them that I would bring them out of Egypt and bring them into a land of glory. That is the land of Israel, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. But they rebelled. And they did not listen to me. They would not follow me. They held on instead to the gods, the idols of Egypt. Now, most likely what God is referring to there is the episode that happened soon after they had left Egypt. You remember that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and stayed for a long time. And the people down in the valley said, what happened to Moses? We don't know. We need, we need something to worship. And so Aaron says, well, bring me all your gold. And he fashioned a, a calf out of this gold, and they worshiped this golden calf. That is what the background is for what God is saying here. They would not forget their idols that they had in Egypt. Now, we're not told a whole lot in other scriptures about other kinds of idols that they had in Egypt, but obviously 
They were worshiping idols. And God said, I should have wiped them out right then. In fact, if you go back to the story in uh, Exodus chapter 32, Moses is praying to God and he's pouring out his heart to God and says, God, save them, redeem them, spare them, or if not, just take me. Just kill me instead of them. And God would not do that because of his own namesake. We're going to see that over and over again in this chapter, that because of God's own namesake, he would not destroy his ancient people. And so we have, first of all, their experience in Egypt and then coming out of Egypt. And then we have, starting at verse 10, we have their experience in the wilderness. And I won't read all of this, but I'll read two or three verses here. Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness and I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me. So here's the second time that Ezekiel says the house of Israel has rebelled against him. They rebelled against him right after they came out of Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness, and, and uh, Ezekiel's telling this story and reminding them of their history. They're in the wilderness, and they rebelled against me. But look at verse 14. But I acted for my name's sake, that, that it should not be profaned among the Gentiles. In other words, God said, my name here is at stake. My reputation is at stake. And if I bring them out of Egypt just to kill them in the wilderness... People are going to say, well, God couldn't do anything else with them. All he could do was that. And so he just brought them out so he killed them. He didn't really love them. He just wanted to get them away from Egypt so he could kill them and do with them what they really wanted, what he really wanted to do. And God said, no, for my own name's sake, I'm going to save them. For my own name's sake, so that my name will not be blasphemed among the Gentiles. So we have Egypt. You have the wilderness. That's the first generation uh, that came out, of the, uh, came out of Egypt. And then starting in verse 18 of chapter 20, you have the second generation. That is the children of those who came out of Egypt. The older generation died in the wilderness because of their unbelief at Kadesh Barnea, where the spies came back and said, it's a good land, but there's giants in the land. And so the people, so many of them said, we can't do that then. Uh, the children here starting in verse 18. But I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Look at verse 21, though. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my judgments? Then look at verse 22. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my namesake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. And so here again, God says, I, they deserved to be put to death in the wilderness. Not only those who came out of Egypt, the leaders, the people who worshiped this golden calf, those who died in the wilderness, their children then, they rebelled also. They deserved to die in the wilderness. But no, I spared my judgment because I did not uh, want anyone to profane my name. And then, even after they get to the promised land, look down at verse 28. 
in the, in the account here now, they are in the promised land, verse 28, when I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees, there they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. There they also sent up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, what is this high place to which you go? So its name is called Bema. That word means high place to this day. So what were the Israelites doing? God has brought them now into the promised land through the leadership of Joshua after Moses died. And they get in the promised land, the, the land that God had promised them so many years ago, promised Abraham over 400 years before that. And they're finally in here. And that you'd think that they would be so happy and so grateful for what God has done to them. Not only had he delivered them from Egypt, not only had he kept them during the wilderness journeys, now he had brought them into Canaan. He fulfilled every word that he had ever said to them. But what do they do? They don't, they don't have their heart fully devoted to the Lord. No, they, they use high places, high hills to worship idols in. This beautiful land that God said, I'm giving you this land of glory to worship me in. But no, they weren't satisfied with worshiping a God they could not see. They wanted to bow down to a God made of wood and stone. And that's exactly what he says in verse 32. What you have in your mind shall never be. When you say, we will be like the Gentiles, like the families in other countries, serving wood and stone. So these folks were doing the very same thing that those who had gone before them had done. And so now God says, I want to explain to you why you're in exile. Look at verse 33. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. Now that sounds at first like what he said that he was going to do when he was bringing them out of Egypt. With a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. But now this time, with that same strong arm and outstretched hand, he's threatening to bring his fury, his wrath upon them. I will bring you out of the peoples from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod. That is, I'm going to count you as you pass under the rod. That's a reference to what a shepherd would do when he was counting his sheep. They would pass under the rod so he could examine them. He says, I'm going to pass you under the rod and examine you to see how you're doing, see what, whether you have passed muster or not. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you. So here again, there were still rebels. They were rebels in Egypt. They were rebels out of Egypt. They were rebels in the wilderness. They were rebels in the promised land. They're rebels now still, even though they are in this place called Babylon, where they are in exile because of their own idolatry. As for you, he says, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go, serve every one of you his idols, and hereafter, if you will not obey me, but profane my name, my holy name no more, with your gifts and your idols. So here, God is saying to them, I've had it with you. I've given you opportunity after opportunity. 
I've sent prophet after prophet. You've killed them or stoned them or ignored them. I've threatened you. I've warned you. This pattern of rebellion, I can tell it's in your hearts and you're not going to stop. So I'm going to finally bring the judgment on your generation that I've been threatening now for hundreds of years. God will always deal with a pattern of rebellion, whether it was in his ancient people, the Israelites, whether it may be in a church, whether it may be in a nation, whether it may be in an individual person. If there is a a pattern of rebellion in someone's life, especially if that person is, is a professing believer, if there's a pattern of rebellion against God, God will deal with that person. Be sure your sins will find you out. Yours will, mine will, everyone's will, because there's no way to get away from the omniscient, the all-knowing, and all-seeing God. But now, that's the present pain they were in. Point number two, I want you to see that God always makes a provision for righteousness. God always makes a provision for righteousness. Now, let's stay in this same chapter and look with me at verses 10 through 12. Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt. That is, he brought them out by the blood. They were protected by the blood of the lamb. Moses was God's man to lead them out. I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Here is God's promise to them that he has given them the law, He has given them statutes and judgments, which he says, if you'll keep the law, you'll live. You'll live if you keep the law. But they didn't. They did not keep his statutes. They did not keep his judgments. He gave them also Sabbaths. And you see the word is plural, not just one Sabbath day every week. Sabbaths, that is many Sabbaths. He did give them a Sabbath day every week, but he also gave them a Sabbath year. Every seven years was to be a Sabbath year when the land was to lie fallow. They were not to do any planting or, or, uh, or anything like that during the year of the Sabbath. The land was to lie fallow. Now, if there anything that grew up wild, they could harvest that but they weren't to work the land that year. 
And then every 50 years, it was what was called a jubilee year, kind of a super Sabbath. Seven years times seven years is 49 years. And then the 50th year, so they'd have two Sabbaths, two Sabbath years right in a row. And God said, I gave you my Sabbaths as a way for you to distinguish yourselves between all the other people who live on the earth. I gave you my judgments, I gave you my statutes, and I gave you my Sabbaths. You see, the rest of the world, they didn't observe a Sabbath. The rest of the world did not honor the Word of God. The rest of the world did not have the Word of God because it was, it was entrusted to the ancient Hebrews. And it was a blessing that God gave them His Word, but they weren't able to keep it. It was something that was a command from the outside, but God said, if you can, you'll live. But the prophets would say also that if you want to live, that is, if you want eternal life, it's by faith. For the one who is justified, that is, who's right with God, is living by faith. So because they ignored the word and because they could not keep the word, God brought judgment upon them. But there's nothing wrong with the word. There's nothing wrong with the commandments and promises of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about that in Galatians. He says that, uh, that, that the fact that no one is justified or that is made right by, uh, with God by keeping the law is evident because the just shall live by faith. Well, then he goes on to say, well, what about the law then? Why was the law given? To show the righteousness of God. The law shows that nobody can keep the law of God and therefore, we need God's grace, and we need to trust Him by faith. Even their keeping the law would have been by faith if they could have done it. But so God always makes the provision. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and good. The problem is with us, isn't it? The problem is with our hearts. Our hearts aren't right with God. We, in our flesh, do not want to obey God. We do not want to go God's way. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. We want nobody to tell us anything to do. We want to, do, we want to make up our own minds. And God said, that is the way of rebellion. I showed you what my righteous standards are. I wanted you to be different from everybody else in the world. And you could demonstrate that by letting the land lie fallow one year out of seven. And then on the Jubilee year, uh, it was a special year where people could receive their land back and this Jubilee year, they'd receive their land back if they'd sold it. All of that, God wanted his people to live differently. They refused to do so. And the reason that they're going to be now in, in uh, Babylon, in exile for 70 years, was because they had ignored 70 Sabbath years. And so God said, I'm going to put you in this exile in Babylon one year for every Sabbath year that you did not observe. And so what we see is that the people of, of uh, God, as they were supposed to be, were not really the people of God in their hearts. God had chosen them to be special and different. He wanted them to know him. They were content with keeping rituals. 
They were content with the modern-day equivalent. Well, I went to church on Sunday, and that's all God wants of me. God does want you to come to church on Sunday. But he wants far more from you than that. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your worship not to be, I have to, but I get to. He wants our hearts to be right with him. And when they're not, he wants us to come to him in in repentance and humility and ask for his cleansing and forgiveness. And he is merciful and gracious, and he will forgive. But he wants us to know him. That's why Jeremiah said in chapter 9 of his book, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. For I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. He wants us to know him. In one sense, it's almost impossible because he's God, he's infinite, and we're finite. But it is possible to know him because he wants us to know him and he's made the provision for us to know him through the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and our repentance and faith in him and the Holy Spirit in us that we might be the vessel, the temple of God, and be a representative of God, an ambassador for Christ in this sin-crazy world. So God will always deal with the pattern of rebellion. God always makes a provision for righteousness. And now the third is in chapter 21, verses 26 and 27. And... Point number three is this, God promises a future led by his royal son. Now, I want to read also verse 25, as well as verses 26 and 27. This is is God still speaking through his prophet Ezekiel. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. He is speaking there of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Zedekiah. He was a bad king. In fact, the last three kings of Judah were bad kings. The the only one that was good before that, or the one that was good most recently before that, was a man named Josiah. He was a great king. But those who followed him were all bad kings. One ruled for three months, another for 11 years, and so on. But here he is, and here's what the Bible says about him. Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Now, what does all that mean? Well, verse 26, 
is God pronouncing judgment upon Zedekiah, the evil, wicked king. He says, remove the turban. Now, the turban was the cap that the high priest wore. And so what he's saying here is that Zedekiah had tried to be a priest in addition to a king. But that, that mitre is coming off. That turban is coming off. And the crown, that's the crown of a king, it's coming off. There's not going to be another king in Israel. Nothing shall remain the same. There have been kings in Israel ever since, uh, ever since uh, Saul, the first king, and then David and Solomon and on after that. But no more. The kingship in Israel and Judah is over. Remove the turban. Take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. That was just the opposite of what the Israelites had been doing. They had been exalting those who were full of pride and they were putting down the humble. But there's coming a time, he says, when the humble will be exalted and the exalted, and the humble be exalted and exalt the humble. Look, verse 27. Then he says, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. That is, the, the king, the royal kingdom is overthrown. It shall be no longer until. And here's the promise. You remember I said the title of the lesson, message tonight, is present pain, future glory. Until. He comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is talking about the only one who is, has the right and the authority and the power to be the king of Israel. Now, I want you to do something here. I want to show you something that God showed me uh, not too long ago. Turn over with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to look with me in these first few verses of Matthew. This is the genealogy, the earthly genealogy or family tree of Jesus. And I'm, I want to point, uh, really focus our attention just on one or two verses here after we read the introduction where Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then he goes on and gives the genealogy starting with Abraham, the first man or the, the founder of uh, the Jewish uh, religion or Jewish race. Abraham begot Isaac and Jacob and so on. And he goes on uh, down to talk about Solomon and all these others. And then when he sums it all up, look at verse 17. The generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon, or 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ, or 14 generations. But look with me back up at verse, uh, verse 11. You remember I said the last good king was Josiah? Josiah begot Jeconiah. Now back in those days, the kings would often have more than one name. And that's what you see here. Well, who's Jeconiah? Jeconiah had a name that went something like this, Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. Joshua begot Jeconiah, 
and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. Now, wait a minute. If you remember just a few minutes ago when I told you about the prince, the last king of Judah, his name wasn't Jeconiah. His name was Zedekiah. They're two different men. So if he was a king in Judah, why is he not listed in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, there's a very good reason for that. Because God wanted the line to continue through Josiah and Jeconiah, even though Jehoiachin was not a real great king. In fact, he did stuff that was bad. The Bible says that he only reigned for three months because he did what was evil in the sight of God. But God used all kinds of people in the ancient world and still today to bring about what his desire is. So when God inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write this genealogy, he totally left out the two other last kings of, of Israel because the family line was going through Jeconiah and then Shealtiel. You see, what happened was Zedekiah, his sons, if you remember this story from a few weeks ago, they tried to escape when Nebuchadnezzar's armies uh, encamped around Jerusalem. They tried to escape. They were caught they were brought to Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah's sons, who would have been in line for the kingship, they were put to death before the king Zedekiah. And then Zedekiah's eyes were put out. So the last thing that he saw was the murder of his own sons. And then he went on to Babylon and died there. But Jehoiachin or Jeconiah, was already in Babylon, and he lived there for many years after that, and he had children there in Babylon. One of them was named Shealtiel, and that son is the one who became the next in line for royalty in the family line of Jesus. But think about this, and this is what struck me a few months ago. When you think about this genealogy, all the way down to Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, what you have here is a line of, or a list of 14 kings who never had a throne to sit on. They were in the family line of Jesus. They were in the genealogy of Jesus. But think about that. They, they knew their heritage. They knew what line they were in. They knew that they should be sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, but they were not. Here are these 14 kings in the family line of Jesus, and yet there was no palace for them. There was no capital for them. There was no throne for these kings to sit on. Why? because none of them was qualified to sit on that throne based on the prophecy that God gave to Ezekiel. No one else will sit on the throne. It is totally upside down now until he comes, who is the one that I have appointed to be the king. So when Mary heard the announcement from Gabriel that she was going to be the mother of the Son of God, that she 
was going to give birth to the Son of God, that he would be great. He would be the son of David. He will be called great in God's kingdom. She couldn't believe it at first, but this was the fulfillment of all the ancient prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. And then when the angel Gabriel also told Joseph that same message, don't be ashamed to take Mary, your wife, because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He is going to be great. He's going to be the king of Israel. He is the Messiah. He will save his people from their sins. So what is God doing? Hundreds of years before all that happened through Ezekiel, he is saying to them, listen, guys, I know it's bad now. And there's not going to be another king in Jerusalem There's not going to be another nation called Judah just like it has been. All of that's going away. There will be no king until, until the time has come for the one who is the right one to sit on that throne. And in the fullness of time, Paul tells us in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law and those who had not lived under the law. In other words, everyone, the Lord Jesus came in order to fulfill the prophecies. He came in order to save his people. He came in order to save the whole world. He came to die. He came to rise again. He came, he came, and he did all of that He rose from the dead, he ascended back to the Father, and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He does not yet have an earthly throne. He has a heavenly throne sitting right next to his Father in heaven. And one day, though, he's going to have a throne here on earth during the millennium and then in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. He'll have a throne here forever and forever and forever. And therefore, friend, we can live and look forward to the wonderful glory that is ours now and it's going to be even more so in time to come. So there may be present pain, but there is future glory because of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and what he will do yet one day out there in the future. So don't be discouraged. Look up. Keep your eye on that eastern sky. Jesus is on his way. Old Gabriel is up there ready to blow that trumpet. I think he's probably licking his lips right now, getting ready to blow that trumpet. And we say with the apostle, even so, come, Lord Jesus.